Welcome to Global Dispatches, a world affairs podcast. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And on this show, you will find in-depth conversations about topical issues in global affairs, often featuring stories that don't make the headlines, but probably should. I also have in-depth conversations with newsmakers or otherwise interesting people in foreign affairs who discuss their lives and careers, often with digressions about the big foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. Global Dispatches is produced independently, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by telling your fellow international affairs nerds about it. My guest today, Elizabeth Economy, is the author of the new book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. The book examines the transformative changes ongoing in China today under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has consolidated power in a fairly unprecedented way, and as Elizabeth Economy explains, he is fundamentally shifting China's domestic and foreign policies. We spend the bulk of our conversation focusing on Chinese foreign policy, including China's massive foreign development program called the Belt and Road Initiative, its attempt to create an ostensible rival to the World Bank, and its assertive policies in the South China Sea, among other issues. But Elizabeth Economy's book also focuses on Xi's imprint on domestic issues, and we do get into that a bit in our conversation. But to go deeper, I'd strongly recommend you buy the book, and I'll I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. If you want to learn more about Elizabeth herself, go back to our archives. Episode number 95, published in January 2016, is one in which Elizabeth sits down with me for a long conversation about her life and career, including how she became interested in China. It was a good conversation, uh, so go back and, and listen to that one as well. And finally, a couple of announcements before we begin. Regular listeners may have noticed that the podcast is no longer produced in partnership with Humanity in Action. That was a one-year deal that expired on May 1st, and I just want to profoundly and publicly thank the good people at Humanity in Action for entering that partnership with the podcast over the last year, and you should all rest assured that I will still include the smart and interesting people from the Humanity in Action Network on the podcast from time to time, and I still remain a proud senior fellow with Humanity in Action. That said, if you are with an organization and want to sponsor the show in some way, perhaps talk through a content partnership, please feel free to reach out to me directly and we'll talk. There's a contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com that sends an email right to me. And one final announcement. I wanted to tune you all into a new podcast series produced by the Carnegie Corporation, Peace Builders, the name of the series, explores critical issues affecting Africa through on-the-ground conversations with researchers, journalists, NGO practitioners, and government officials. Uh, And I wanted to play for you a 60-second preview of this new podcast series. And I should note, this is not an ad. The podcast isn't getting paid to run this promo. I just sincerely think a good number of you out there will be interested in checking out this new podcast series. So here is the promo from Carnegie. I'm Scott Malcolmson. And I'm Aaron Stanley. We're hosting a new podcast series by Carnegie Corporation of New York called Peace Builders. The whole idea of creating democracy and you know that, all those good things and good governance, that seems to have been a bygone age now. That's forgotten. 
For this nine-episode series, Scott and I traveled to Kenya and Ethiopia to speak with African peacebuilding experts who focus on critical topics every day. I wonder what African problems could be in a rather globalized world. We are so interconnected as humanity that I feel talking about African solutions to African problems is a little simplistic. Tune into Peace Builders starting May 1st for strong and informed debates on critical topics for peace and security in Africa. Find it at Carnegie.org or search Diffusion and Carnegie in iTunes, online, or your favorite podcast app. All right, very cool. Now on with the show. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth Economy. She is the CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And her book is called The Third Revolution. So we kick off putting that revolution in the context of the previous two. Here she is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the first revolution was really uh, led by Mao Zedong uh, and the Chinese revolutionaries back in 1949 when uh, they created really the Chinese party state, uh, the People's Republic of China. And the second revolution was Deng Xiaoping, uh, beginning in the late 1970s and early 1970s, uh, a period of reform and opening up to the outside world, uh, as well as a low-profile foreign policy. And then today we have Xi Jinping, uh, and I would argue that she has really launched uh, the third revolution, uh, the creation of a new model of Chinese domestic uh, and foreign policy that is uh, fundamentally different and in uh, many respects runs counter uh, to the uh, second revolution that Deng Xiaoping initiated. So we're going to spend, I, I think, the bulk of this conversation talking about the foreign policy uh, aspects of this third revolution. But I guess briefly before we dive in there, can you discuss some of the ways in which Xi Jinping is kind of making his mark domestically in sort of inspiring this this kind of third revolution? Yeah, I think you know one of the hallmarks of uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, period, uh, the 40 years really of reform and opening up, uh, was uh, a collective leadership uh, where certainly he was first among equals, but uh, but nonetheless decisions were uh, consultative and and made uh, collectively, uh, as well as a withdrawal of the party of the Communist Party from many of the daily functions of people's lives. So withdrawal from the economy. Uh, withdrawal from uh, sort of uh, social, the degree of social penetration that had occurred under Mao Zedong, um, greater freedoms uh, for the Chinese people. This is like a liberalization, you could say? Yeah, absolutely. A, a period of liberalization. As, you know, that's why it's known as opening up, right? Reform and opening up. Xi Jinping, in contrast, has centralized authority. Uh, he's really assumed an enormous amount of power into his own hands. Uh, he's not simply first among equals. He's just first. Uh, he sits on top of all of the most uh, important 
committees and commissions, whether you're looking at sort of cybersecurity or national security or economic reform or political development, uh, all of the most important uh, committees that sort of set broad policy for the country, Xi Jinping sits at the top of them. It's un unprecedented. Uh, in addition, he has his you know, very significant anti-corruption campaign uh, that he has used certainly uh, to root out uh, the massive and endemic corruption that occurred as a result of Deng Xiaoping, but also to target his political enemies uh, and ensure that, you know, again, his is the, really the only voice that matters. Uh, and then I think, you know, over the past year, uh, we've seen that uh, he's had his name and his thought enshrined uh, in the party constitution in a way that only happened uh, for Mao Zedong. Uh, he didn't uh, sort of commit to a successor, someone who would re replace him in 2022 as general secretary, leaving open the opportunity for Xi Jinping to serve for a third term. Again, that would be uh, breaking with a 25-year precedent. Uh, and finally, uh, just most recently in March, uh, we saw that the National People's Congress, at Xi Jinping's behest, uh, decided to eliminate the two-term limit uh, for president of the country, a position that Xi Jinping also holds. Uh, so now we know that Xi Jinping can remain general secretary of the Communist Party, uh, president of the country, and chairman of the uh, Central Military Commission uh, for as long as he wants or until the Chinese people and Chinese leadership uh, decide uh, that he no longer is suitable. Now, uh, so I think that's... Well, I'm, I'm wondering, like, how are the Chinese people, how's your sort of ordinary average Chinese citizen sort of experiencing these changes or are they experiencing these changes in, in any meaningful way? Well, I think uh, for the most part, uh, Xi Jinping has, you know, fairly broad-based popular support, a little bit like Donald Trump. When Xi Jinping came to power, he went around the traditional elite and down to the people, to the masses. Um, and uh, and spoke to them. So I think, uh, you know, his anti-corruption campaign, for example, is very popular uh, among the, you know, majority of the Chinese people. Uh, but I think if you speak to sort of the elite, um, if you look uh, certainly at the retired uh, senior officials, uh, there is a lot of concern uh, over his centralization of power. Uh, there was a lot of negative discussion um, about uh, the uh, decision to remove the uh, two-term uh, presidential, the limit uh, for, to two terms for the president. I was in Beijing in late March, and uh, I heard nothing uh, but concern uh, from a number of scholars and others. Uh, so I think they, they look back to the period of Mao Zedong, and they think, you know, we spent 40 years moving away uh, from allowing one man to have that much power you know, and he just produced, you know, extended periods of chaos and tumult. Uh, and I think there's a lot of concern that Xi Jinping, you know, should not control this kind of power. Um, so I'm wondering how this consolidation of, of power is affecting Chinese foreign policy. I guess I would presume that sort of the normal bureaucracy of Chinese foreign policy has been um, – has been weakened, I suppose, around sort of the consolidation of power around Xi Jinping. Is that true? And, and how has that manifested itself so far? Well, I think, um, you know, the most significant thing about uh, Xi Jinping's uh, foreign policy is simply how much more assertive, ambitious and expansive uh, it has been. Yeah, you title your chapter, The Lion Awakens. 
Right. Um, but it's, that was from Xi Jinping, and Xi Jinping, you know, says that the lion is peaceful. <laughs> so, okay. But, a peaceful but, lion I'm, I'm, gently roars. Right. Himself, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not. He's just yawning, not roaring. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, that he is, uh, that China is quite so peaceful under Xi Jinping. So I think, uh, you know, if you look, I think it's three different areas, you can see that Xi Jinping uh, has very significant ambitions uh, for China. Uh, for example, in the area of sovereignty, right? So while China has always maintained uh, these claims in the South China Sea, uh, it was really Xi Jinping um, who moved uh, to dredge this uh, land, to reclaim land, to build up these seven reefs in the South China Sea, and then to militarize them, even though he promised he was not going to militarize them. And, and we so should just say, for people who are not familiar, this is a disputed territory between the Philippines and, and other countries in the region that lay claim to the same area in the South China Sea. Uh, but uh, China has sort of assertively defended its, its uh, territorial claims that are of maybe dubious uh, legal standing. Not just dubious legal standing, you know, well, that was court of arbitration. Of things, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The court of arbitration in 2016 ruled against the Chinese claims mm -hmm. and said there was no basis uh, in law uh, for the fact that China appears to be claiming between 80 to 90 percent of the maritime uh, area of the South China Sea. So, you know, that's just one example of, of the new assertiveness. Uh, I think, you know, more potentially positively, uh, Xi Jinping, you know, has launched this Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. Uh, that originally was designed to connect, you know, 60-odd countries uh, via infrastructure, mostly ports and railroads and uh, pipelines and uh, highways, uh, but has since expanded uh, to have a digital belt and road. So, you know, GPS, satellite systems and uh, fiber optic cables and e-commerce, a polar ice belt that could go through the Arctic. Uh, and of course, she has welcomed the entire world to participate mm -hmm. in this. Well, I uh, actually wanted to spend a good bit of time talking about Belt and Road uh, because it, it is seemingly one of the most ambitious aspects of Chinese foreign policy. And you go into a bit of detail in it uh, in your in, in your book. Could you, I guess, just sort of cite some specific examples of what Belt and Road projects are, how they've been sort of implemented so far, just like where the idea comes from as well? Sure. So the idea of Belt and Road actually wasn't Xi Jinping's. Um, in fact, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had talked about revitalizing the Silk Road. Um, uh, Kazakh uh, uh, leader Nazarbayev uh, had originally also talked about the of developing the Silk Road again, uh, but really it was Xi Jinping uh, who brought to life in 2013, first in Kazakhstan, the idea of bringing back uh, this idea of the Silk Road, connecting China uh, through the rest of Asia, the Middle East, uh, Europe, and, and to Africa. Uh, and then in 2014 in Indonesia, he announced the second part of it, uh, which was the maritime sort of the maritime spice routes. Um, and, uh, you know, going through uh, the Indian Ocean all the way to, um, to Africa. So uh, there's a belt and there's a road, um, and the kinds of projects uh, that they undertake are vast. So again, initially it started off with uh, projects like, um, you know, dams and uh, roads and highways. Uh, most of the money that uh, China is spending on Belt and Road, uh, about half of it goes to just three countries, Pakistan, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Uh, most of the money is, comes in the forms of loans rather than actual Chinese investment. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the level uh, that Chinese, uh, Chinese overall foreign direct investment, 
only 10% of it is going to Belt and Road countries. So uh, again, it's an ambitious plan, but sometimes when you look down on the ground to understand exactly how it's being um, prosecuted, it's not exactly what you might imagine. And, um, and, and, and it causes, you know, it, it is ambitious. It is, you have these major investments, but as you said, you know, asterisks, those investments are, are come in the form of, of loans that, you know, are due to be paid back at some point. Um, but, but also um, they're creating some kind of political friction as well in, in, in some cases. Can you, I, I guess, explain some of the some examples of, of how these kinds of investments are, are somewhat fraught at times? Sure. I think there are, are several sources of, of concern in the countries in which um, China is undertaking these Belt and Road projects. Um, first, um, issues of transparency in the bidding process. So in a couple of occasions, um, it's been revealed that Chinese companies won the bids, even though they weren't the, the lowest bidder. So, uh, you know, there's some kind of backdoor deals going on between uh, the Chinese and the leaders of certain countries, um, you know, to undertake these projects. Uh, but they're not really there's not a transparent uh, process in the bidding. Uh, there are environmental considerations. So there was a protest in Kenya, for example, uh, over a coal, coal fired power plant. Uh, that China is going to be building as part of its Belt and Road. You know, this is Kenya's first coal-fired power plant. You know, do they really need a coal-fired power plant? Uh, and the coal-fired power plants that China is exporting through the Belt and Road, this is another area of concern, uh, don't use the top-of-the-line technology uh, that they've started putting in place uh, within their own country. And that stands in contrast to Japan, which also uh, exports uh, coal-fired power plants. Uh, so that's the environmental issues uh, are of some concern. There are other kinds of political concerns uh, surrounding things like uh, the export of Chinese uh, values or the surveillance system. So there was a protest in Pakistan, one of China's closest partners, uh, over the fact that China planned to uh, establish a surveillance system uh, in Pakistan, similar to the one it's putting in place in China. Um, you know, people got riled up. You know, not only do they not necessarily want that kind of, you know, voice and facial recognition uh, system, uh, but they don't necessarily want it to be uh, Chinese technology. So I think there are a lot of different ways in which um, there's consternation. And then simply the fact that, you know, China's undertaking these enormous projects in places like Sri Lanka and elsewhere where there's may not be the potential to pay the loans back. And when that happens, you know, China will sometimes say, okay, well, we'll take some land or we'll take, you know, payment in natural resource or we'll take uh, payment in a port. And uh, that gives rise uh, to concerns in many of these uh, countries and calls of like neocolonialism. And so um, gangsterism that, almost as well. Yeah, well, there's that. That's another way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but that also paints China with a very negative um, brush. Mm -hmm. So as much as China is contributing. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the needs for infrastructure globally are enormous, uh, you know, in the trillions of dollars uh, annually, uh, going up to 2030, uh, that the way that it's going about its business um, is not necessarily according to, you know, the highest standards. And and, and it is, I, I think, worth emphasizing, as you do in your, your book, though, that this Belt and Road Initiative is um, enormous. And, and it's like, you know, th their time horizons are in like the 50 and, and 100 year horizons. 
Absolutely. And I think it's also right. So this is a long, a long term project and it evolves. Uh, so, again, as it, you know, it started off initially as, as largely infrastructure. And then, you know, the next iteration had, oh, well, we're going to try to do, you know, renminbi internationalization, right, to have the deals done using the Chinese currency. Uh, we're going to have trade deals. We're going to have, um, you know, voice of China. We're going to have cultural exchanges, um, partnerships, you know, to get the Chinese narrative uh, out there. Um, and then again, you know, all of the digital Belt and Road stuff, which is very fraught. But uh, I should say, as you, you um, make the point in, in, in your book, um, these kinds of ambitious agendas to boost, you know, China's image around the world and Chinese soft power runs head against, you know, Xi's consolidation of power and growing authoritarianism in, in China itself. Uh, you, you know, you, you make the point that China's soft power is muted uh, because of because of this, because of, of sort of the centralization of power and the lack of, of freedoms and liberties. Right. I think there is a combination of things in, in some respects. Um, you know, soft power is really about uh, the attraction of, you know, other people uh, to a country's, you know, values and to its, its culture, its ideals. Uh, but these things are organic and they need to be reflected in the country. And so when many of these countries look to China and they see this, you know, enormous political repression uh, that's uh, taking place, and then they're experiencing the sort of heavy footedness of China and, you know, the neocolonialist aspects of the Belt and Road, it doesn't really do much to engender a lot of affection uh, in a number of these countries. Can, can you talk a little bit about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I, I think is such a, a fascinating example of China trying to um, invent a kind of new multilateral institution to perhaps, as they would say, complement or as others might say, compete with existing structures like the, the World Bank and, and sort of what the significance of the advent of the AIIB, AIIB is to you? I, you know, I think the the real significance of the AIB was probably at its launch, uh, in the sense that it did mark uh, one of the first times in which China had uh, proposed an institution, a new multilateral institution, open to everyone, not like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, for example, the security organization that involves Russia, mostly Central Asian states, and now Iran and India, a couple of others, but but is not open to, to the rest of the world. Um, but this was really open to everybody to participate. And it was done, I think, in part, again, in recognition of the need that the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank uh, and the rest of the world were not meeting the financing needs of the developing world for infrastructure, um, you know, moving forward. Uh, but also uh, because the Chinese didn't like the fact that they looked out and thought, eh, we're never going to be head of the Asian Development Bank. That's Japan's. We're unlikely to be head of the World Bank for the foreseeable future. That's really the United States. You know, we want to make our own mark. Uh, and I think, you know, if, if you look at Xi Jinping's speeches, one of the interesting things that he says back in 2014 uh, is that he wants China not only to help write the rules of the game, but to construct the playgrounds on which the games are played. Mm -hmm. And the AIB in that context was really that. Now, of course, what, what made it particularly interesting was that in its initial, you know, in its inception, uh, most of the developed countries, the advanced industrialized economies, uh, weren't interested in joining. And so, and the U.S. And, actively discouraged its allies from joining. 
The Obama well, administration yes. did. Yes, yeah. I, I do believe that, although the U.S. government denies that that's the case. But but I do happen to to believe that that is the case, um, having heard from uh, some other. Uh, it was widely you know, reported that the Obama administration reported, yeah. actively discouraged its allies around the world from joining this Chinese led right. new multilateral institution. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Obama administration kind of yeah, got, got egg yeah. on their face. And, yeah, exactly, right. With yeah. the exception yeah. of Japan. Uh, which had its own interest with the Asian Development Bank, and but pretty much all of the other European countries, Australia, et cetera, closest allies, uh, all joined in. I think so. That was it was significant in the fact that uh, China exceeded, you know, as they will say, beyond their wildest expectations in terms of attracting all these countries to participate. Then came the more difficult job of actually governing and running the bank and and how is it going to operate? And in order to be credible with all of these advanced industrialized countries, uh, it really needed to operate at the same level as the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. And, you know, they brought in uh, a lawyer, an American uh, who had been at the World Bank to draft the charter for the AIB. Uh, And I think for most um, reports, it really does operate at a very high level. Uh, and, uh, but what it doesn't do is do a lot of projects. <laughs> so when you look, actually, it's done most of its projects in conjunction with the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. So it's a partner more than a, an independent actor. And when you look at the Belt and Road projects, many people mistakenly believe that AIB is somehow, you know, deeply involved and behind a lot of these projects. In fact, that's not the case. The vast majority of Belt and Road projects are financed through, uh, China Exim Bank and China Development Bank. And those two banks operate on Chinese principles. Uh, So AIB has turned out to be so far like a little brother or sister to the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank. We'll have to wait to see how it evolves. So so this whole question around the AIB is is very interesting to me because it it kind of raises this broader set of questions uh, over whether China's rise will happen sort of inside the existing liberal international world order or will be a a challenge to it and sort of, uh, you know, push back against that kind of liberal international order, which is, you know, was invented by the United States and and the U.S. sort of still continues to dominate. Uh, So I guess I'm curious to learn from you what you think uh, about that question will or has china's rise and and xi jinping's world view been one that has sort of embraced the existing liberal international order or has pushed back against it where do you see sort of that question evolving so i think the the answer to that is uh yes and both right mm-hmm. so in some instances we see that china uh, does in fact uh try to and does operate largely uh, in ways that are supportive uh, of the liberal international uh, order. And I would say the AIB is is one case in point. Um, but by the same token, we can see that China in international human rights regimes or on cyber discussions uh, is advancing its own perspectives, right? It doesn't have the same ideas about the free flow of information uh, that but, the United uh, States- But, but it's doing so within, within those institutions. Like it's pushing back against cyber, uh, against sort of the, the organization, the architecture of, of how the internet is organized within the World Intellectual Property Organization. It's still sort of operating in that framework, right? It, it is, but it also has different ideas about who should be sitting at the table. 
Mm-hmm. So it doesn't want um, business and NGOs to be active in the global debate. It believes that only states uh, should participate, which which does change the nature uh, of the debate, of the discussion, and, and of how it's weighted. Um, and uh, I mean, you're right, uh, that is uh, within the, the construct. Uh, but if you fundamentally shift uh, the, the values and the norms, even if you have an institution, uh, you've really changed the nature of the game. Uh, it's not just about the the architecture, but it's about the values that are uh, embodied in that architecture. Uh, so, you know, China can adhere to the WTO, uh, but if it doesn't actually live by the rules of the WTO, one might say that it is, you know, not really, you know, operating in, in, in support of the liberal world order. So I think... Um, the, the point that I try to get at, um, you know, through my research and what I, what I discovered is that, you know, it's it's really issue by issue, um, whether you would consider China to be, you know, a system reformer or a system revolutionary or a system maintainer. Um, I think one of the most interesting cases is, uh, you know, if you look at the South China Sea and the Arctic, uh, so China's becoming very uh, interested uh, in the Arctic. I should say that is the issue. most surprising part of of, of your book uh, that I read was was this was that China considers itself to be a near Arctic country. <laughs> right, 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 and a polar power. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 funny, except for the fact that it's really made pretty significant strides in becoming a very important actor uh, in the Arctic uh, by virtue of the amount that it's investing. Uh, in terms of natural resource development, by virtue of its, uh, you know, in partnership with Arctic countries, by virtue of the fact that it has a huge research, uh, Arctic research uh, endeavor underway with thousands of scientists in China devoted to this. Um, But the point I was going to make is that, you know, on the one hand, it likes uh, the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea with the Arctic because uh, it wants to be able to uh, treat the Arctic as a global commons uh, and develop and, and have access to the resources as the uh, glaciers melt. On the other hand, when you look at the way it behaved in the South China Sea, it completely ignored uh, the ruling uh, by the um, International uh, Tribunal uh, that said that you know its um, claims uh, to sovereignty in the South China Sea uh, didn't hold uh, with the United Nations Convention. So it kind of you know plays one way when it suits its purposes and another when it doesn't. Which, which is not, I suppose, dissimilar to how like the United States often you know treats international law, picking and choosing what parts of it it will follow and, and enforce, and in which parts of it it will sort of conveniently ignore. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you there. Um, but I think you know they can hold us to account. I think that's perfectly fair when we don't uh, abide by international law, and we should also hold them to account. Uh, so, any sort of parting thoughts on on how we should approach? Chinese foreign policy. What? What? Anything else you want to get in about your book in the last like minute or half we have? No, I think just that um, Xi Jinping really is transformative, and um, you know we shouldn't think about China under Xi as just a natural extension of what has come before. Uh, he really is transforming China at home, making it more authoritarian, you know, centralized, um, repressive, uh, and much more ambitious uh, globally. And the intersection of those two things and the potential for uh, Xi Jinping to project uh, Chinese values, even a China model onto the international stage, I think is something that we're going to need to be thinking about and responding to, um, you know, shortly. 
Uh, well, Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much for your time and, and for the book. It's great. Uh, I'll post a link to it on the website, but thank you. It's very clarifying. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. All right. Thank you so much to Elizabeth. That was great. Much appreciated that conversation. I um, read chapter seven of the book and the intro to the book. Chapter seven is the foreign policy portion of the book, but I do look forward to reading uh, the rest of the book. It's a very helpful, I think, explanation of kind of the current state of play uh, in China today and and, uh, the impact and imprint that Xi Jinping will have on China for decades to come, probably, because he is sort of engineered himself to be something akin to a ruler for life. So we'll see where this leads. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye.